Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. <clears throat> it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. Now, as we ended our study last week, I mentioned that Jesus was hinting at the end of chapter 23 at the judgment that was going to be coming on Israel in A.D. 70 and Jerusalem because of their murder and the rejection of the Messiah. Go back to where we ended up last week, Matthew 23, verses 36 through 39. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Look closely. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a couple of things I want you to see from the end of chapter 23 that will help us start to unpack chapter 24. When Jesus says your house is left to you desolate, what was he talking about when he said your house? The temple. Keep that in mind now, and I'm going to hopefully be used to God to help you get a mindset of where the disciples were at this time. Because Jesus just said, your temple is left to you desolate. And he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Keep in mind, they had already had the triumphal entry when he said this. They had already said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in his triumphal entry. But now he says, you won't see me again until they say, you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hinting at the fact that there's another coming, a second coming, when they're going to welcome him as the Messiah. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus gets a bit more specific as to what's going to happen to the temple. And he says how there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. Look closely. The, the, verse, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <clears throat> now, the temple in the Temple Mount complex was so large and so impressive that the disciples had a hard time imagining it ever being desolate. You get, I don't know how many of you have ever looked back and studied what the temple looked like back in that day and what the Temple Mount complex and the buildings all incorporated. It, it had been under construction for a long, long time and Herod had actually been helping in a long process of rebuilding and actually enlarging it. They had rebuilt the foundations and more and added and it had become big. And let me give you an idea. Um, some of the stones of the temple 
were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 12 feet wide. That's just some of the stones of the walls of the temple and the temple mount. Let that sink in for a minute. Imagine the work to just not only cut it, but to also move it and to stack it. Some of the stones were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide. Oh, and they were covered in gold. Everything was covered in gold. They say that when the sun rose and hit the temple, the temple, you could see it for miles. It was just the most glorious thing. So the disciples now have just heard Jesus say, this area is, your house is left to you desolate. How could it be? Do you see the size of this place? Do you see what's going on? As you're going to see in a little bit. Also, they're having a little problem because they still don't understand about his going away and coming back and the church age and all that. And so they're just thinking the kingdom is going to happen now. And there are prophecies that talked about the kingdom in the temple. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But Jesus had been hinting that because of their rejection of the Messiah, because of their killing him, that he was going to, on that generation, have them go through a time where the temple would be desolate and not one stone would be left on top of another. Now, the Roman general Titus surrounded the temple walls in AD 70 with wooden scaffolds. When, when Titus said, OK, the Romans have had enough, they put up with the Jews enough, and the judgment of God came on the nation because of their rejection of the Messiah, Titus came in and he built wooden scaffolds all around the temple and put a whole bunch of other stuff that was flammable, and he set it all ablaze. The fire was so intense that the stones actually began to crumble. And after the fire, people took the rubble apart to get all the melted gold that had gotten down in between the cracks. And not one stone was left on top of another because of the gold that was all in the cracks. And actually, they would take some of these big old stones and they pushed them off the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley. If any of you have ever been able to go to Israel, you'll see the Kidron Valley down below. And some of those stones are still there. Go to Matthew 22. We, back, we were here in 24. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 22. It's going to make a whole lot more sense now when we get to now that we've gotten to where we are. Matthew 22. Look at verses one through seven. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and did what? Burned their city. A hint in his parable about what was to come. Go to Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. In Luke 19, verse 41. This is at the end of Jesus' riding in on the donkey on the, the triumphal entry. And when he drew near the, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus had already hinted and already prophesied about the destruction that was going to happen in A.D. 70. So with all these hard to comprehend words swirling in their minds, they came to Jesus later on in the next verses back in 24. 
verses uh, 3 and following, they came to Jesus later on in the Mount of Olives and they asked him when the destruction of the temple would be. That's when they said, when will these things be? And what the sign of his coming in the end of the age would be. Now, you got to keep in mind, like I hinted at earlier, the disciples didn't understand about Jesus' death yet, his resurrection, his time in heaven, the church age, before he returned to set up his kingdom. They still thought that Jesus was going to reveal himself then, and the kingdom was about to start. Go back to Luke 19 and look again at verses 11 and 12. I want you to see, they're asking him these questions. When will these things be? That's why they're pointing out the temple to him, because he's just said, there's not gonna be one, he's just said that the house will be left desolate. And they come and they point out all the buildings and how big and marvelous they are and majestic they are. And that's when he says, not one stone's gonna be left on top of another. Look at Luke 19, verses 11 and 12 to show you their mindset. It says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to re receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And if you know the parable of the ten minas, he tells of how he left them responsibility. He went away for a long time. And he came back and reckoned with them. In his parable, he's, he's showing them, look, I'm going to go away. What you do in the meantime is going to be the most important. But the reason he told that parable is they thought the kingdom was going to happen right now. They still thought that after he died and rose from the dead. Go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 7. Now, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he's now writing the book of Acts. And he says, in the first book, which is the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And now while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So again, they thought before his death that the kingdom was going to start right then. And he told them a parable about how he's going to go away to a far country and what they do in the meantime is the most important. Then after his death, which they didn't understand, and his resurrection, which you know wasn't until after he rose from the dead, they started to remember, oh yeah, he said that. And the Holy Spirit began to give him insight. But after he rose from the dead, he appeared to them for 40 days. And what did he teach them about, according to verse uh, 3? He taught them about the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. Let me chase a rabbit real quick. We've been taught, many Christians have been taught over the years, that the church has replaced Israel and that there's not going to be any kingdom in Israel. There's no millennial kingdom on the earth. Jesus rules and reigns. But actually, God's ruling and reigning and the kingdom of God is now going to be fulfilled in the church. You know what I'm talking about. We've heard that, haven't we? Now the church has replaced Israel. If Jesus taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God and that his teaching was it's now in the church and it's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, they would have never asked him at the end of that teaching of 40 days, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Because the teaching of the kingdom must have been about the kingdom being in Israel. But he says to them, it's not for you to know. 
the times of the seasons. And as we know in the very next verse, he says, and you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uttermost parts of the earth. And in those same verses after that, he ascends and he goes back to be to the Father, with the Father. So the disciples, this is, the, this is why the concept of the temple and the temple mount being destroyed and desolate seemed to make no sense to these people. I mean, the prophecies about the Messiah in the coming kingdom included a temple. So we have to remember what's going on. This conversation that we're looking at in Matthew 24, we're going to go, go with me to Psalm 118 first. But this conversation that we're looking at in Matthew 24, where they come and point out the temple because he had just said it would be less, left desolate. And he said, not one stone's going to be left on top of another. And then they come and say, well, talk to us about when this is going to be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. That was all happening because in their minds, we can't imagine this place being destroyed. It's so magnificent. On top of that, we still think the kingdom's going to happen now. And on top of that, the kingdom prophecies all talk about a temple. Let me just give you one. I could take the rest of the night. We're just going to look at one. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. Oh, by the way, it's that same one we look at a lot of time when we look at the primeful entry. But look closely. Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. Save us, we pray, O Lord. By the way, save us is Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from where? From the house of the Lord. Where's that? That's the temple. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. You are my God and I'll give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So this prophecy about his coming and them praising him and welcoming him. And they said, we praise you from the temple. So this whole it's going to be destroyed. They don't know how this all fits together. So in Matthew 24, they come to him in verses 1, 2, and 3. So mainly verse 3. And they came to him and they said, Tell us when, gonna, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and the sign of your coming in the end of the age. What we're going to see tonight is Jesus doesn't answer the first question about when will these things be, talking about the destruction of the temple. He goes straight to answering the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Look at verses 4 through 8 and what he says next. Matthew 24, verse 4, he says, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, when Jesus talked about these signs of the false Christs and the famines and the earthquakes and all this stuff and the wars, he could have simply been describing how things will get progressively worse until his return, just like labor pains on a woman. And by the way, that's what I taught for years. I actually have a recording on my website, which I want to get off, by the way, of, uh, of me teaching about the, doing the research of how many earthquakes there have been and how we're in the labor pains. I don't believe that Jesus is referring to the continual increase of earthquakes and famines and wars and stuff that have been going on for a long, long time. Because if we're, if we're going to go with that interpretation, we've been in the labor pains for quite a while, haven't we? Look closely at verse 8. 
These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Don't miss that. He doesn't say birth pains. He says the birth pains, almost like he's hinting at a previously prophesied time period described as the birth pains, right? And I'm about to show you from the Old Testament, that's exactly what he's doing. Folks, I'm just going to tell you straight up. I think he is. I believe Jesus is speaking of the beginning of the tribulation period, which are, which are described in the Old Testament as a time of a woman in labor. And as we'll see, Jesus describes here in Matthew 24, perfectly parallels what is written about the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. That's what we're going to do tonight. I want to show you just in these verses, the beginning, we'll finish it, well, continue it next week. But we're going to start breaking down what Jesus says here in Matthew 24 about the sign of his coming in the end of the age. And I hope that the Spirit of God will help you to see. And by the way, check everything you hear Jim Johnson say against the Scripture. Don't say, well, Jim believes that I believe it. No, no, no. You're going to be held accountable for what you believe, and, and I'll be held accountable for what I teach. But I want you to check against the Scripture. I think when Jesus says there's going to be false Christ, wars, famines, earthquakes, and these are just the beginning of the birth pains, I believe he's intentionally speaking about the tribulation period, that last seven year period of prophecy from Daniel 9, and he's pointing out what's going to happen. And let me just show you what I mean. Go to Jeremiah 30. And by the way, I want you to write these verses down. I'm going to give you four passages that talk about the birth pains. I think there are more. But I'm going to give you four, and I want you to go look at them for yourself as well when you have time someday, and I'm not rushing you through them. But go to Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 7. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. By the way, I love how he brings out Israel and Judah. Because there's lots of Christians that say, well, not all who are of Israel are of Israel. And those who are of faith are a part of Israel. And that's true. We've been grafted in. Yes, we've been included in the promises for Israel in the church. But we haven't replaced Israel. And this prophecy is talking about a time when he restores the fortunes of not just Israel, but Judah. He's making it very, very clear. And he says, I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic and of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, that's Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. So here we see in Jeremiah 30, God says there's a day coming that there won't be a time period, by the way, like there will be no other time period like it on the earth. And by the way, we don't have time to get there in Matthew 24 tonight. We'll hopefully get there next week. Jesus actually in this section of 24 talks about how those days being so bad, there'll never be anything like it. Just like the prophecy said, but it's described as a time period as a woman in labor Yet Israel will be saved out of it. Go to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, look at verses 6 through 13. And by the way, at any point during this, if you have a question, just stick your hand up and, and I don't mind answering it. 
Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Would you not agree, those of you that have done a little bit of study with me, and we've looked at Revelation and Ezekiel, that he's talking about the tribulation period here? I mean, that parallels it perfectly with the stars falling from the sky, the earthquake that's going to move the earth off its axis, all this stuff. And that time period is described as what? As a woman in labor. Just like we saw, time of Jacob's trouble, also described as a woman in labor. Oh, go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jim, we were just in Jeremiah, so go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Look at verses 27 through 31. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this, earth, for this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of the horsemen and the archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets. They climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken. By the way, don't miss the fact that they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I'm fainting before murderers again. A prophecy that you're going to see parallels with the book of Matthew and the book of Revelation. Also described as a time as a woman in labor. But let's go to one that I think seals it. Go to Micah chapter 5. Now this is a passage we all know well because it's used many times when we hear the Christmas message. We're going to start in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But we're going to keep reading all the way through verse 5, the first half of verse 5. Look closely. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now look, this one that's going to come and be born in Bethlehem, it says in verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be our peace. Did you see it? The prophecy first talked about his birth, but the next verse talks about his second coming. But the second coming doesn't happen until after what? She who is in labor has given birth. Go back to Matthew 24 and look again now. They said, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus says, uh, uh, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they'll lead many astray. And you hear wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains, the ones that have been prophesied, the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. And I'm going to show you that even more now by having you go with me to Revelation chapter 6. You're going to see that what Jesus just said in verses 4 through 8, the beginning of the tribulation period parallels exactly with Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 17. Go to Revelation chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard uh, one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse... And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people would slay, should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be completed who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as, fig tree, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. Does that sound familiar? Of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
I'm going to show you real quickly that I think what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, parallels with the opening of the seals in the beginning of the tribulation period. Um, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray because there's going to be false Christs or antichrists, right? What's the first seal in the book of Revelation? The antichrist, the false Christ coming out on the white horse. Oh, he then says there's going to be wars. There's going to be false Christ. There's going to be wars. What's the second seal? The red horse, and people are able to slay one another. There's going to be wars. Third thing he says in Matthew 24 is there's going to be famines. What's the third seal? And the black horse is what? Famine. So much so that people can hardly they spend a whole day's wage for a loaf of bread. Now, the fourth and fifth seals give more specific detail as what's going to happen during that time. But when you get to the sixth seal, it parallels exactly with what he just said. Because he said there's going to be false Christs, wars, famines, and earthquakes. And the sixth seal is what? No. Sixth seal, look at verse 12. And he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. As you're about to see, go back to Matthew 24. The next verses of Matthew 24 will parallel with the prophecies about the world hating the Jews at that time. But the Jews that survive and believe will be saved. Go back to Matthew 24. I think he's laid out the first, the beginning of the tribulation period, and he's going to start moving toward the midpoint of the tribulation period. We'll pick up next week when we come back together with verse 15, when we get into the, the very clear uh, mark of the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist steps into the temple and declares himself to be God. But look at verses 9 through 13 for now. Jesus says then, remember that's just the beginning of the birth pains, then they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We're going to save verse 14 for by itself because we're going to spend some time clarifying verse 14. Because I think it's one of the most incorrectly taught scriptures in all of the Bible. All right. But we'll come back to that one in a little bit. So Jesus, by the way, is talking to the Jews here, and I'm going to show that to you scripturally. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to the Jews. Again, we don't have time to get into it in too much detail tonight. We'll deal with it more next week. But Jesus later on talks about how, pray that your flight doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Would he write that to the church? No, we're not under Sabbath regulations. He also says, pray that your flight doesn't happen in the winter. He couldn't be speaking to the church because the church is all over the whole globe and it's winter somewhere. Is he going to the church to pray against each other for his? No, he's talking to the Jews and what's going to be happening in Israel and Judah. And it's that time of Jacob's trouble. And as you're about to see, and I'm going to show you from the Old Testament prophecies, when Jesus talks about how the whole world is going to come against you and all the nations of the earth are coming against you and they're going to go after the Jews to kill them. And he who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking about the nation of Israel and the, and the Jews. Let me say, ask you this question. Are you and I saved by enduring to the end? No, we're saved by grace through faith. But as you're about to see, the prophecies are going to show us that during the tribulation period, the whole world will be against Israel. And every nation on the earth is going to go against Israel. And the Antichrist is going to go against Israel. And the Jews that survive the tribulation, the prophecies all say that everyone who makes it to the end alive as a Jew will believe in Jesus and be saved. 
Those who endure to the end will be saved. But don't take my word for it. Let's let the scripture speak. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 14. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all of the nations of the earth will gather Against it. By the way, has that prophecy been fulfilled? No. Oh, the Jiz Israel's been attacked many times. Jerusalem's been surrounded many times, but it's never been all the nations of the earth. Like a lot more nations are paralleling themselves. And yes. It, we're we're going to, and we're, let me touch on that real quick, what you brought up, Glenn, about how all of a sudden there's like having more nations come to peace with them. L let me back up for a second. We already read in, in Jeremiah how the prophecy said that in the last days and on that day, he'll gather all the Jews and bring them back into their land. And so many Christians have gotten so excited since 1948 and the rebirth of Israel and, and the prophecies are being fulfilled. He's regathering them back into the land. Be careful. Read the prophecies closely and you'll see on that day when he regathers Israel, you're going to see it tonight. They're all going to believe in him and they're all going to worship him. That's not happening now. On top of that, as you're going to see more next week than tonight, when the Antichrist reveals who he is after he makes the false peace treaty with him, he's going to reveal who he is at the midpoint of the tribulation, and he's going to go after the Jews and all the nations of the world are going to go against the Jews, and some are going to stay in, in, in Jerusalem. Others are going to run for their lives and out into the wilderness, and God's going to protect them out there. Yeah, well, it may be, but whether it's Petra or not, some people think it might be, and I lean in that direction, but we don't know. We know it'll be in the area of Basra and Moab. But here's what I want you to see. They're going to be chased out of the land. So I'm excited about what happened in 1948, the fact that Israel's in the, in the land again, because all the Old Testament prophecies about the return of Jesus in the second coming in the tribulation period require Israel to be in the land for that to happen, there's going to be a temple, there's going to be an antichrist, there's going to be a chasing them out of the wilderness, out into the wilderness. Israel had to be a nation again for those prophecies to be fulfilled. By the way, that's why the church for so long, because there was no Israel in the land for almost 2,000 years of the first 2,000 years of the church age, there was no Israel in the land. So the prophecy studiers, studiers would look at it and go and say, well, maybe Israel means something else. And that's where they came up with the theory of how the church has replaced Israel and now all the promises are the church and they made the kingdom of God, not a literal kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom because there was no Israel in the land. Now, Israel is in the land again, but not all of them. They're going to be all regathered at that time, according to the prophecies. And are they all worshipers of God? Not even close. But they had to be back in the land for all the prophecies to be fulfilled about them being chased out and attacked in the land. Now back to your comment about we're getting all these nations all of a sudden crazily signing peace treaties. Nations we didn't think would. Oh, get excited, folks, because the prophecies say that when all this stuff begins to take place, Israel's thinking they're at peace. When they're saying peace, peace, all these things are going to happen. So I get excited when all these nations say, let's make a peace treaty with Israel is lining up with the prophecies. 
But right now, as a nation, the United States is not against Israel. As a nation, we're pro-Israel. We'll see how things go, because in time, they may not be that way down the road. But the Bible says at some point, as we read here tonight, every nation on the earth is going to be against Israel. If we still exist when these things happen, we'll be against Israel. Because if God said every nation's against Israel at that time, every nation will be against Israel. So keep reading. Verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I'll keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, that's prophecy language, by the way, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one be weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself. And by case you weren't curious that I was talking about the nation of Israel, and so the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. So again, the prophecy talks about how all the nations in that time are going to come against Israel, and Israel that survives is going to turn to the Lord and believe in Him. Go to Jeremiah 31. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and just to make sure you're not trying to say, think it's the church and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Folks, don't miss this. At the end of the tribulation period, all of Israel that survives the tribulation will turn to faith in Jesus Christ, and all Israel that survives will be saved. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? You're going to have all these nations gather against you and all the nations are going to fight against you. And you're going to have people betraying each other and, and hating each other and the love of most are going to grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking to the nation of Israel. Go to Romans chapter 11. Go to Romans chapter 11. 
We're not going to break down the whole chapter. I'm just going to show you verses 25 through 27. But in Romans chapter 11, Paul is dealing with this, this question. Is God done with the nation of Israel? Has he, has he rejected them forever? And three times he asked that question and three times he says no. And in verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Does that sound a little bit like Micah chapter 5 verse 3 where it says, And he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has, been, has given birth? Until that birth pains are over? Israel's experienced a hardening in part. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way... All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Folks, the Bible's real clear. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the tribulation period and he's laying it all out for it. He's laid out the beginning with the opening of the seals. We're, we're right about the midpoint here in verse 14, which we're about to get to. And as you're going to see next week, when we get to chapter, chapter 24, verse 15, he clarifies what's going to happen at the midpoint and what the Jews are to do at that time. Jesus in Matthew 24 is laying out the prophecy and the, about what's going to happen during the tribulation period. So let's deal with Matthew 24, verse 14. Like I said, probably one of the most incorrectly taught scriptures in the whole Bible. And it's mainly because most Christians today, preachers included, haven't read the Old Testament and really don't study the book of Revelation. I just had the privilege in this past summer in our two months of traveling to teach the, book of, the whole book of Revelation, chapters 1 and then chapters 4 through 22. I did those in chronological order. I did it in five messages. They were intense. They were hard-hitting and they're fast, but they're on the website if you want to go to them. They're on Just a Preacher YouTube channel, and they're also on our website, I think, through the Facebook or whatever. But let me just tell you, if you have a chance, go listen to that. I lay out in the first message how to study prophecy, and I'm going to touch on that as we close tonight. But I also laid out for them that the book of Revelation actually is not a new book that was written, added on at the end. It actually was a compilation of over three, over three quarters of the book of Revelation is Old Testament prophecy. And if you actually knew your Old Testament and you read the book of Revelation, you'd say, oh, that's talked about there in Zechariah. This is talking about what's talking about in Daniel. This is what's being talked about in Ezekiel. And so what I want to show you tonight is that what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 14, that we have tried to read the church into has nothing to do with us. Go to Matthew 24, verse 14. Let me ask you a question. It says, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I want to show a hands tonight. How many of you here have heard preachers say, as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come. Anybody heard that? We've all heard it, haven't we? There isn't a person in the room that said that hadn't heard that. We've been taught for years, as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come. Because Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. I remember back before Billy Graham died, there was a thing years and years ago where he was going to preach the gospel to the whole globe via satellite. And everybody was saying the gospel's being preached to the whole world. This is a sign and the end's going to come. That's wrong on so many levels. It definitely depends on man. And first off, let me just let's just take a look at it logically. 
If that were true, that the gospel hasn't been preached to the whole world yet. What we're saying is, is that there are generations and generations of people who have never had an opportunity to be saved. Does that match up with what the scripture says who God is? How he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance? And I'm going to show you from scripture, the Bible actually says in more than one place, the gospel has already been preached in the whole world. Now, before I show you the verses, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be sending missionaries out. I'm not saying we shouldn't get out the message all over the globe. We should continue to go where God sends us. Folks, even if the gospel's been preached here in Melbourne, Florida, and Palm Bay, Florida, completely, that doesn't mean there aren't people that are being born today and people moving into the area. We need to keep sharing the gospel because there's more and more people. But don't ever think for a second, like you just said, that God's left it up to us. And as soon as we get off our rear ends and get the gospel, that is an impotent God. And he's not served by human hands if he needed anything, Acts 17, 25 says. And go with me to Colossians chapter 1. And look at what Paul says in verse 23. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 23. Now, Paul's in the middle of a run-on sentence, so if you ever try to find where he begins a sentence, it will take too much time tonight. So let's just jump in the middle of his sentence here. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, don't miss this, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So has the gospel been preached in the whole world? The Bible says it has. Romans 1 clearly says that all men are without excuse. God's revealed it through creation. Romans 2 says whether they've heard his law or not, he's written it on their hearts and everyone. And he says, God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, I think it is. The Bible's very, very clear. God has always had a witness. In the book of Acts, Paul's preaching and he even says to these nations, he said, God hasn't left you without a witness. He's provided you rain. He's provided you crops. He's never left himself without a witness. Let's go to Romans 10, though, another passage that has been preached like it's up to us. You ever heard people say, well, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Well, you got to hurry up and get the message out. Read the context and read what it says. Let's start in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, well, he's just said in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him from whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They've heard it. They've not all obeyed it. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask... Have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. We've had preachers preach these verses to us saying, if you don't go tell them, they may never hear. How can they hear unless someone preaches? It's actually saying the exact opposite. Paul's laying out and he's been saying, look, God would never expect you to recall on him if you've never heard of him. You've heard of him. How can they hear unless someone preaches? How can they go unless they've been sent? And as it is written, how blessed are those that preach the good news, the feet of those who preach the good news. And Isaiah said, he said, well, first of all, he said they haven't all obeyed the gospel, even though they've heard it. Isaiah says, who has believed what he's heard from us? And then he says, have they not heard? Of course they have. 
His word has gone out to all the earth. Folks, let me encourage you with something. The gospel's been preached and been being preached by God and many other people using people. He's using creation. He's using his spirit. He's using lots of different ways. The gospel's getting out. People are hearing. Now, does everyone hear the same amount? Does everybody get the same amount of light? No. We'll all be judged according to how much light we've received. But don't think for a second that God's waiting on us to finally get the gospel to the whole world. He doesn't need us. And thank God he's not waiting on us because we're not doing the greatest job, but he's still going to get his stuff done. Didn't Jesus say that he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it? We need to take a deep breath and realize we got a big God. So what does Jesus say? What's he saying here then in Matthew 24, verse 14? Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, look at verses 6 and 7. Now remember, Jesus has been laying out for them the sign of his coming in the end of the age, which is that last seven year period right before the millennial kingdom, right before his return. You've got the tribulation period laid out, the Antichrist, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. And then all of a sudden, the nations are all going to gather to fight against you, Israel. You're going to be in what you think is peace for the first little bit. Then all these things are going to start to happen. And then all the nations are going to go against you. But those who endure to the end are going to be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. I believe the prophecies show us here in Revelation 14, right about the midpoint of the tribulation, which is where we're going to stop tonight. Look at first, verse chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now, if you would go on, another angel warns of judgment coming on Babylon. And then in verse nine, another angel comes and says, don't take the mark of the beast because what's about to happen on the earth. Right about the midpoint of the tribulation, there's going to be an angel that comes and preaches the gospel to the whole world right before the really bad part gets coming, which we're going to study next week. And it's going to be preached to the whole world, gospel of the kingdom, and then the end, which is the second half of the tribulation period, is going to come. Now we've only just done verses 1 through 14 in Matthew 24, but are you starting to see how he's talking specifically about the tribulation period and to the Jews. This isn't about us. It's about them. Now, I'm going to do one last thing as we close. And if you have any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. But I'm going to do one last thing. We need to be reminded about how to study prophecy. That's part of why people have a problem with prophecy is because it's a little tricky at times. And the best way I can illustrate it to you is to take you to two passages of Scripture. The first one's in Isaiah 61. Go to Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 61 and look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, look at verses 1 and 2. Very familiar passage. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, don't miss this, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Keep a finger or a bookmark in Isaiah 61. Jump over to Luke chapter 4 with me. Go to Luke 4 verse 16. In Luke chapter 4, look at verse 16. 
And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Look closely. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped right in the middle of a verse. And he rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus only read the first half of verse 2? We know the verse said, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he stop in the middle of the verse, roll up the scroll, sit down and say this has been fulfilled? Right. In other words, in his first coming, he was coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I call it the age of grace, church age. When he comes back is when he comes to bring the day of vengeance of our God. Now, would you not agree that's a correct interpretation? And some of you have already gotten there on your own, right? Let me ask you a question. Did you realize that what you just said? You just said that the first half of one verse is talking about one time period. The second half of that same verse is talking about another time period almost 2,000 years apart. Would you not agree with what you just said? Do you see how prophecy gets a little tricky? You can be reading prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says he'll be born in Bethlehem. The very next verse talks about another whole time period, how he's going to give them up until the time when she was in labor is given birth, and then he's going to come and gather Israel and shepherd them and all that. That's why we need to, in the old King James way of saying it, rightly divide the word of God. That's why we need to know the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. If you just try to read the New Testament and then try to make it make sense in your head, you're going to get confused. You're going to read the book of Revelation and go, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. And you're going to try to spiritualize it. Well, maybe this means that and maybe this. No, I want you to believe that actually whenever Jesus points out something, he's referring to something that's already been said. And when he said, they said, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He said, let me talk to you about the birth pains that were prophesied, the birth pains. There's going to be a first part. And this is what's going to happen. And we see it in the book of Revelation. Then there's going to be a midpoint. And these things are going to happen. And we're kind of around the midpoint right now. We'll deal with it more next week. And then there's going to be what we call the end, the last part of the tribulation period. And as you're about to see, as bad as it sounded in the first part of the tribulation period, what happens next? Well, as Jesus is going to show us next week, um, if he doesn't cut those days short, no human being would survive. Oh, didn't we read in a prophecy that said during that time period, the time of the birth pains, that man is going to become really scarce on the earth? So, folks, I'm going to just say to you, take a deep breath, because actually the Bible is real clear that he won't do all this on the earth and do what he's going to do with Israel and judging the whole world until after the time of the Gentiles has come to an end. This age of grace, this church age, and the Bible clearly teaches a rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We won't have time to get into that. We may do that some weeks down the road, but we're going to look at Matthew 24 when we come back together next week. But you really need to understand God's whole timetable, what he's laid out all through history, and then when you look at prophecy, you'll say, oh, that's talking about this time period, that's talking about that time period, and it'll all make sense. Any questions or anything before I let you go?
I love you. See you next week.